Praise the Lord, it's not like it is right now in the Sinai, amen? So, you know, even though it's night, it's still a hundred. Uh, very, very warm in that neck of the woods. Um, we do not have, so far as I know yet, our petitions uh, to begin to sign those. They should be done relatively soon, we hope and pray. So uh, as soon as we have them in our warm fingers, we'll make sure that you know about that. Uh, continue to pray. Uh, the battle heats up. Um, probably many of you know, probably some of you don't, maybe many of you don't, um, but I'm going to give you a little history lesson tonight. For those of you that keep track of such things, uh, tonight at sundown is Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a time of reflection for the Jewish people. It begins the ten days of awe, and it is the high holy days. It's the most holy period of time uh, for the Jewish people. Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets, and so on that evening uh, at sundown, the rabbi, the local rabbi, would grab his shofar and do that, and he would blow his shofar, except really, really, really loud. And upon the sounding of the shofar, it would begin 48 hours of introspection. And so there are three feasts that will happen over the next ten days, and the first one is the time of repentance. It's the Feast of Trumpets. It lasts for 48 hours. It goes till Sabbath, this coming Friday going into Saturday, followed by what will happen the following Sabbath, which is Yom Kippur. Anybody familiar with the history of Israel and what happened in Yom Kippur in 1973? Syria and Egypt attacked Israel exactly 40 years ago, a week from Friday. Do you know who was in power at the time that Syria attacked Israel exactly 40 years ago, a week from Friday? Bashar Assad's father, Hafez Assad. We're, we're in this crazy period of time where the Jewish people beginning right now are seeking the face of Yahweh Adonai, the Lord of hosts. They're asking of him for forgiveness of sin. They're preparing their hearts and their minds for the Day of Atonement, which will be in roughly ten days now. It's nine hours ahead there, so they're ahead of us a bit. So as they're preparing their hearts, what was happening 40 years ago was that Anwar Sadat, Hafez Assad, and the forces of the Jordanian army under King Abdullah were preparing to attack Israel. I find it very, very, very interesting that we are sitting in a period of time where that very thing might well be getting pondered in the hearts and minds of the Arab enemies of Israel. The reason that I say that is they're very fond of attacking Israel on their high holy days because it's a direct insult to Yahweh. It's a way of saying that Muhammad, the prophet of God, is more powerful than Yahweh Adonai, Lord of hosts. And so it is interesting to me that our Congress has chosen today to vote at least by proxy to give our president the power to strike Syria. Here's why I find this very interesting. If you want to turn there, you can to Isaiah chapter 17. 
for this is the burden against Damascus. For behold, Damascus will cease from being a city. It will become a ruinous heap. For the cities of Aor are forsaken. For their flocks which lie down, no one will make them afraid. The fortress will also cease from Ephraim. In other words, there's going to be trouble in northern Israel. From the kingdom of Damascus, but the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. For in that day, and so it gives us a timeline, it marks this time out in the very last days that uh, mankind is going to be spending on this earth, that this shall come to pass, that the glory of Jacob will wane. In other words, the glory of the children of Israel shall wane, and the fatness of his flesh shall grow lean. Now, the only reason I'm sharing this with you, and by the way, the prophet Jeremiah writing at the same time in chapter 49 of the book of Jeremiah says much the same thing. The reason that I'm saying that is as you look at Damascus today, which is going to be the center of all of this activity that I believe is going to occur. it, It almost seems incalculable to me what it would take to stop what is going to be some type of military engagement by our military against Syria. Um, Bashar Assad has now moved all of his armor, uh, all of his chemical weapons into areas that are highly populated. And the only way for us to strike them is to risk civilian casualties and harming human shields and those types of things. You'll notice it says that Damascus will cease being a city. Uh, That has never occurred. These words were written in roughly 686 B.C. We are now 2,700 years ahead of that timeline. And since then, actually for a thousand years prior to that, there has been a a city located where Damascus sits, and it has been called Damascus for a vast majority of that time. And so who knows what's on the horizon, but I know this. By the time you get to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and you begin to read these nations that are going to rise up against Israel in the last days, whose chief and whose guide will be Russia and whose consortium will include Persia, which is Iran, who will also include Syria and Egypt, uh, you might want to make sure that you're sharing the gospel with everybody you know. Because I don't know when the trumpet, the real trumpet, the trumpet of God is going to sound and call his church home. But it could well be that we're seeing the beginning of the end if this goes the way it might possibly go. Uh, That's not predictive on my part, by the way. That is simply saying we have never had these conditions exist in the last 2,700 years to where there is about to be a war where at stake is the survival of Damascus as a city. Because if we hit those chemical weapon stockpiles, you could kill off virtually everyone in that entire region with the amount of chemical warfare that they have. We now know that the gas was used as sarin. It probably came from Iraq. They also have VX nerve agents. They have used in the past mustard gas, which is wonderfully uh, framed for us as chlorine. It destroys your lung tissues. We don't know. We're not sure that Bashar Assad doesn't have some limited ability uh, to launch a nuclear strike as well because of their association with Russia. 
Uh, Russia has all kinds of nuclear weapons that are unaccounted for. We don't know where they are. I'm telling you this so that you will pray for the peace of Jerusalem because our president seems to be completely inept at understanding that Bashar Assad is not going to attack the United States of America. He is going to attack Israel if he retaliates. That's who he's going to attack. And if he does that, now you have Iran, who is the chief weapon supplier for Syria, by way of the Soviet, former Soviet Union, the technology came, and by way of Russia today, the actual product comes, you have a scenario for a global conflict. And so pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We know what our Bible says about God's people and how God feels about them. Um, you are about to watch some history unfold, I believe. And so I would encourage you to be in prayer. Um, when the rapture is timed, I, I don't know. I, I know that it comes during this period of time if this is truly what's going to be uh, brought to the forefront uh, of the world stage. And so keep your eyes on Israel. Um, I do have uh, some contacts there, and I have made contact uh, to see what's going on in Israel. And so... It is a very, very, very tenuous time in the world's history. Remember that God's word declares that from the time that Israel re-enters the land, they shall not cease being a people. So we know that Israel is going to continue to exist. However, it says they will exist in perilous times and that they will be made weak so much so that they will become lean. And so... Family of God, now is when your eschatology uh, becomes a little more uh, in the forefront of your mind than perhaps at other points in time in our human history. So as the Feast of Trumpets is underway and Yom Kippur is just 10 days from now and our president has said he will respond whether Congress approves or not, and he's going to launch an attack that will be against Damascus. And there will likely be, and President Assad has said he will respond. Um, who knows what that could bring. So keep your ticket in your back pocket. Uh, keep your heavenly bags packed. For we know that our Redeemer lives. And one day we're going to see him face to face on this earth. Amen? And with that, turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 9. And these passages also remember that they're forward-looking because they're speaking of a time when Israel is going to actually come eventually to that right relationship with the Lord, which they have not done. Israel is, if not the, it is the second most secular nation on earth, possibly second only to Switzerland. And so as you look at modern Israel, modern Israel is... As if you were to if you were to name the faith, uh, you couldn't really even name Judaism because most of them are non-practicing Jews. They're Jews by heritage. They're Jews by lineage. They're Jews by family line. They're Jews by blood. But hardly are they practicing Jews, and in fact, they don't have a temple to worship in. So there is no way for them to be completely in line with what God has told them they should be doing with regard to the Jewish faith. It's impossible. They have no temple. 
There is no tabernacle. They can't offer the sacrifices appropriately, so they kind of made do, if you will, for the last couple thousand years since 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And so as we come to chapter 9, a study that I've entitled Don't Plant Cactus, I was trying to lighten the mood by giving this an interesting study title tonight. Um, because very often, now, some of you probably have grown up here in, in Southern California. Uh, some of you maybe not. Maybe some of you are from the Midwest or the upper Midwest or the northern part of the state where you, you don't really know what cactus is. But growing up here in Southern California, I am intimately acquainted with the California jumping choya cactus. In Jesus' name, my brother Rick and I have, we have experienced its glory, shall we say. And and the interesting thing about cactus is it, it apparently has come from the spawn of Satan because it has no purpose other than to afflict great bodily harm on anyone that gets anywhere near it. And so it is in our lives. There are things that we have in our lives that have no potential for good. And yet it staggers my mind to see people planting the seeds of those things that have no potential for good. No one with operating brain cells would plant California jumping choya in their garden, even if they had a cactus garden, okay? It's from the devil. It has no purpose. You get near it, you touch it. The interesting thing is it's very flexible. So the moment you touch it and you try and get away, it attacks you. And it has barbs on the spines and they have little sheaths on it. Even if you pull them out, which you can't actually do, it it leaves a sheath and it just gets infected. And it's they're horrible. They have no useful purpose. It is interesting to me that people still choose to plant cactus in their life. The Jews did. They knew exactly what had destroyed them. They knew exactly what God had told them not to do. They knew exactly even the penalty that would occur if they engaged in those behaviors. They had been told from day one, do not do this. Thus says the Lord, these things will destroy you. Don't plant cactus. Unless you want to get stuck. Chapter 9, verse 1. And let's pray. Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God, have your hand upon your nation. Lord, we know that the Jews are not completely innocent in all things, but God, we, above all, know that you love them and you made a covenant with them and your word declares that you will bless those who bless them, you will curse those who curse them, that they occupy not their land but your land. And God, because it is your land which you have promised to them and you have given them safety, God, for a nation to rise up against the Jewish people is to rise up against you. And so we pray for the innocent on all sides, God. We, we pray for the Syrian people who have suffered under Bashir Assad. Uh, we ask God that if there's no other way that you remove him, that you take his life if necessary. God, do what you have to do. Lord, anyone that would gas his own people uh, surely has hardened his heart uh, beyond your desire to to see them go further. And so, Lord, we would ask uh, that you would move in the region. Lord, would you protect 
God, those who right now are defending uh, our safety, Lord, as those, especially the naval ships that are in the Mediterranean, Lord, as that Russian guided missile cruiser heads towards them at this very hour, Lord, as the intelligent ships are signaling back and forth their intentions, as the submarines have left the ports at Tartus, Lord, as our submarines have entered the area, our guided missile cruisers on their way, Lord, we ask for you to rule and reign in sovereign plan. God, would you bless us tonight as we study your word, and Lord, keep us from entering into sin willingly. Lord, planting bad seed. God, cause us to be holy people. Lord, help us to rest and trust in your goodness. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all of this in the mighty name of the Lord, who is our Savior, Jesus. Amen. It says in verse 1 of chapter 9, and it begins here with the tragic consequences of planting bad seed. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples. In other words, it isn't going to do you any good. Isn't it funny how people feign that they're having a good time when they're in the midst of perhaps even a time of chastening from the Lord? Oh, well, I don't really believe that. I don't really think that God's actually disapproving. You know, I'm just having a rough time of it or a rough go of it. And all the time God's going... I told you what was going to happen. I've instructed you clearly. Don't kid yourself. And so he says, do not rejoice. For you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. What a condemnation of the behavioral characteristics of a people who are supposed to be God's chosen people. Think about it in the modern sense. Israel had gone and done exactly what the Lord told them not to do. And they had done it for the very worst of reasons. They had believed that hanging out with Egypt was going to benefit them greater than being where God wanted them to be. That being attracted to the world would be something that would be far more beneficial than being where God wanted them to be. And he says to them, using very descriptive narrative here. You're a whore. You're a prostitute. And you don't care who you sleep with. And you don't care where you do it. They had reached that place to where sin was such a part of their life that they considered it an everyday activity. Note this well. The threshing floor was a place that people went Every day for a majority of the day. They spent a vast majority of their time either threshing or grinding at the threshing floor. So this is saying there was no restraint whatsoever. Look at our world and ask yourself the question. Where has the restraint gone? There's no restraint. Sin is rampant. People don't care. And in fact, as I look at these, there's been so many of them in the last week. You have a photographer in New Mexico. You have a baker in Oregon. You have a florist in Washington, D.C., all being sued and or having their businesses closed simply because they chose not to engage in the preparations for a gay wedding. 
Now, last time I looked in our country, you can put up signs that say, no shoes, no shirt, no service. I would say that's making a choice, is it not, as to who you'd like to serve? And yet, if you make the choice that you want to stand for Christ, because in all three of these cases... The stance was made, I can't do this because I am a child of God. I refuse to do this because it violates my conscience. I cannot tell you it's okay. And in the case of the baker in Oregon, he was so gentle and so kind to this gay couple. He said, I just can't. I feel like I would betray you were his exact words if I were to participate in baking this cake for you, helping you celebrate something that I believe might damn you to everlasting darkness. I don't know how much more loving you can be than that. But sin has become so rampant that now sin is seen as the norm. That's where Israel was. And this is the important correlation. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail her. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why is our economy the way it is? And I'm not saying that I, you know, got a stamp note from God and that I know that I know that I know, but I find it very strange that the further we go into the moral toilet, the worse our economy gets. Could it be that God is saying, have I not blessed you? Have I not given you richness? Have I not made you fat? And yet you turn your back on me. Were you not once my children? Did you not name my name? And yet have you declared with your actions that you do not care for me nor love me? And because of that, could it be that the wine press no longer provides its nourishment and he is not any longer concerned with whether we get fat or not? Did it to the Jews. I I kind of think that he most likely will allow the same things in our lives, whether it's as a nation or personally. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land. Would you underline that? Israel, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, by the way, is is an area that is uh, more than 100 times larger than the area that's currently occupied by the nation Israel. When you look at Israel today, it's minuscule, it's tiny. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob included all of Jordan, all of Syria, part of Turkey, most of Iraq, all of the Sinai, and a vast majority of what is modern-day Egypt, along with what is Israel and Lebanon today. That's God's land. It's the Lord's land. And anyone that's in that land is on borrowed land from the Lord. God's chosen to allow the things that he's allowed, but he said, they shall not dwell in the Lord's land. And he made good on that promise, did he not? He kicked them out of his land for two thousand years. From eighty seventy until 1948. He said, no more. I'm not joking. I'm not kidding. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt. 
In other words, the northern kingdom will be taken captive by Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. And they'll be taking, they'll actually be taken captive. Assyria was a much larger area than Syria is today, though Syria is part of what used to be ancient Assyria, which absolutely included all of Syria today, all of Lebanon today, uh, most of Turkey today, a part of Iraq today. The Assyrian Empire was huge. When the Assyrian general Ashurpernal was ruling in that area, when he finally descended uh, into what is now modern-day Israel, uh, it is believed that his standing and marching army exceeded one million men. A million soldiers on horseback and walking. That is a huge army. Syria today, with a modern army, could not field a million men. And so he says, you'll eat unclean things. You'll, you'll live in a land where you'll not be able to offer sacrifice to the Lord. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall the sacrifices be pleasing to them. Uh, it shall be like bread of mourners to them. In other words, that bread that you brought to the wake, to the mourning period of time, uh, it didn't matter how good it tasted, it didn't taste good. It was a bread of pain. It was a bread of sorrow. And all who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be their own life. You get the picture? You plant the wrong seed, you're going to reap the wrong harvest, and the harvest that you're going to reap is not going to be good. It can cost you your life. I've experienced this. I know of people that I believe with all my heart were taken out by the Lord. God just said, for the sake of everybody else, I'm removing you from the planet. I'm not sure one of those guys didn't uh, finish himself off this week in a prison. doesn't surprise me that he could no longer stand himself after what he did to those three young girls for more than a decade. But God just says, mm-mm. You're not polluting anybody else. And it shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. And Egypt shall gather them up, and Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver, and thorns shall be in their tents. You get the picture? You plant cactus, you get cactus. You plant evil things, you get evil things. You sow stuff that's not good, you're going to reap things that are not good. And if you sow enough of it, it's going to overtake your life. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. For Israel knows, please underline that. God was not being mean. God was not enforcing on them some dictum that they didn't understand. Israel knew what was going on. They knew it was wrong, and they did it anyway. They said, you know what? Hey, we're going to party hardy, man. We, we like what these guys are doing. I mean, after all, I mean, who doesn't like a, you know, a good kegger? Who, who doesn't like that lifestyle where you can just forget about it all? We'll go down and hang out at the Ashtaroth poles. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane. Please look at these things carefully. 
when God's supposed mouthpieces become corrupt, when you're getting trash from the pulpits of the churches, when the churches no longer speak the truth of God's word is another way to look at it. That's what was happening in Israel. The rabbis, the teachers, had said, we're going to follow after Moloch. We're going to follow after Ashtaroth. We're following Baal. That's what our neighbors do. What everybody else does. I mean, this narrow-minded Judaism that puts us under this bondage of having to do all of these festivals. I mean, come on, ten days? The rabbi blows the trumpet on Rosh Hashanah, and for ten miserable days, we got to contemplate where we are with the Lord. I mean, man, Molech's got it nailed. little wine, a little slumber, and poverty comes upon you as a bandit, what Scripture says. Prophet's a fool. In other words, those who used to be the mouthpiece of God, who spoke the very things that God told them to speak, which was not easy, like Hosea. Can you imagine? This guy was about as, as welcome as a skunk at a picnic, amen? I mean, can you imagine saying these things to the Jewish people? Well, you guys are all going to die. You're a bunch of whores. And I'm not trying to say that to be crass. That's what he's saying to them in our vernacular. That was actually a little more gentle than the Hebrew rendering of this passage. You see, the prophets have stopped doing that. I had a conversation with, with Jack yesterday. We're like, where is the church? When's the church going to wake up? When are the pastor's pulpits going to get inflamed with the Word of God? And when are we going to call sin, sin again? Because right now, it ain't coming from the pulpits. Pulpits are aflame with people who are really popular, who've written a lot of books, whose congregations are huge, and they fly around in corporate jets. And I'm not bagging on anybody who's got a couple extra bucks. I'm simply saying, if it costs you the truth to have those things, you better get rid of those things and go back to the truth. Prophet's a fool. The spiritual man is insane. It literally says he's not of right mind. In other words, the men who were known as spiritual are now viewed as insane. I've been called insane recently. Nuts. Out of my mind. I now find out that I get emails that I don't even see. And I've responded to them, supposedly. Of course, it wasn't me, but... Because of the greatness of your iniquity, and because of the great enmity... Don't plant cactus... The greatness of your iniquity, your sin, debauchery, and the enmity. Strife leading to war is what enmity means. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God. Think of this. God said to his watchman, 
I feel so sorry for you. I'm taking you home. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God. He says, you guys ain't listening to him. It's unfair to leave him there to continue to talk to you because you ain't having none of it. Takes him home. But the prophet is a fowler's snare in all of his ways. He says, the watchman, the guy who blew the shofar, the one who said, trouble's coming. Remember, that's what this is for, generally speaking. When Moses went to the mountain, the shofar blew. When Messiah comes, the shofar will blow. And so what he's saying is, I mean, if you look at this, it's just unbelievably deep. The prophet, a fowler's snare in all of his ways. In other words, a person who hunts birds for a living. And if you've ever seen a bird trap, you can't see them. Bird nets are nearly invisible. In fact, if you go to any uh, tropical country in the world to where tropical birds are harvested, they use nets that are actually invisible. So now they can't even see the trap. They don't even know it's there. And it's coming from the prophet's lips. Enmity is in the house of his God. War begins in the house of his God. You know why? Because the pulpit's not preaching the truth. And that does start war. Can you imagine if every evangelical Lutheran church that's gone the wrong way, if every Episcopal church that's gone the wrong way, if every Anglican church has gone the wrong way, every Baptist church has gone the wrong way, and a few of them Calvary chapels that are playing with the wrong way would turn and go the right way and actually preach the truth. Can you imagine the change, the impact that that would have on our country? Pastors would just say, you know what? There is nothing right about homosexual marriage. Nothing right about it. There is nothing right about it. I don't care if you feel like it's an appropriate other relationship. God said it's an abomination. I'm sticking with God's understanding on the matter. It's an abomination, period. doesn't mean you don't love people who are caught up in that sin. You absolutely must love people who are caught up in all kinds of sin, but you don't tell them it's okay. You don't look them in the eye and go, well, you know, whatever, whatever tickles your fancy. You know, I'm sure God will sort it all. You know, I, I believe that he'll just... All those babies are going to go to heaven that you're murdered, so it's okay. And yes, I'm a little preachy right now. And I can't tell you why. I'm sharing with you a little bit. I, my spirit has been stirred for several weeks now, and I have a suspicion that it has to do with what's going on in Israel. Enmity is in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted, as in the days of Gibeah, He will remember their iniquity and he will punish their sins. See, God doesn't miss anything. He he just simply doesn't. And so in all of this, he he gives them this this type which we liken uh, unto Egypt. And I want to get to that in a moment. And he moves on now to barrenness. First, it's bewilderment. Man, who do we follow? What do we do? Who says what? What? You know, where do we get our information? During the American Revolutionary War, more than 60% of all pastors were in their pulpits on Sunday and they wore the, the uniform of the Continental Army on Monday, metaphorically speaking. There was a very true sense that there was leadership coming from the church. It boggles my mind that there's no leadership coming from the church. 
that we're more concerned with the, the things that shouldn't matter than the things that must matter. God sent a heavy price on his people because of that. I don't want to pay it. So if I end up being a watchman that gets snatched, I'm good with that. It, it, it is staggering to me how plain the scriptures speak and yet people won't listen. People who name the name of Christ. Verse 10, For I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, and I saw your fathers as the first fruits on a fig tree in its season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. The story of Baal Peor is found in Numbers chapter 25. And beginning in verse 1, it says there, and I want you to see this, And now Israel remained in the Acacia Grove. The Acacia Groves were planted as places of worship, specifically sexual worship. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab, which would be modern-day Jordan, the land of the Edomites. And they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And he's speaking of the, the Jewish people. He says, hey, come on over. Man, our worship is a whole lot better than your worship. Our church has a bowling alley. We, we have IV Starbucks in every chair. I'm just messing with you. But there was an attraction to the flesh in church. And it says there they invited people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The moment you begin to give yourself over to the pleasures of worshiping a false god, you will eventually fall all the way to worshiping the false god. It's that simple. We call it baiting, it's part of fishing. If you're a really good fisher person, notice how I quickly changed that. I was going to say man. I said fisher person because there are women in this congregation that can fish, including my wife, who always gets the big one. And I hate her for it, but not, not in the wrong kind of hate. It's in, a, it's in a godly hate. It's kind of like God hates sin. I hate, I hate the fact that she always gets the big fish. No, I don't really. It's actually kind of fun. But in that sense, it's debating. It's like, come for this. Come for the food. Come for the party. In this case, come for the sex. Come for the wine. Uh, we hang out. We have a great time in church. We don't get anything done for the Lord, but it's fun. That's where they were. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all of your leaders. Now I want you to read this with me, if you will. Take all your leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord. Now you talk, you know, there's those passages that you read and you go, Really? Do you say that? This is how serious God views repetitive, open, rebellious sin. He hasn't changed his viewpoint, by the way. He's enacted the age of grace, and we walk in grace as the body of Christ, but God still hates sin. Hang the offenders before the Lord, out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord might turn away from Israel. He's saying, punish the guys that are doing this, that are causing other people to stumble, by hanging them in the noonday sun so that Israel will get the understanding that I mean business, says the Lord.
And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and pretended, or excuse me, presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And now in Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And so this is all the way up the ladder. Moses, Aaron, Phinehas, Eleazar. And when he saw it, he arose from among the congregation and took his javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman threw her body so that the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. That's a gruesome, gruesome, gruesome story but it provides us with a very serious backdrop to God's very keen understanding of what he expects out of his people. He's only going to put up with this for so long, and you're going to see people thrust through. And I'm not trying to make a direct correlation, but have you ever wondered why, say, for instance, the AIDS virus exists primarily in the homosexual population? And again, I'm not trying to say it's directly a curse. I'm simply saying God means business. He has made it very, very painful to sin. And he's made it very clear which things are wrong. And so when you look at these sinful behaviors, and the church now has its pastor saying, well, it's okay. We need to just accept that. What God said was, take them out, hang them in the sun, go into the tent, and spear them because I don't want the whole country polluted. It's a tough message. But it's a message that the church needs to lay hold of, at least in our heads and hearts. God hasn't changed his position on sin. He still sees it the same way. Now the fact that he's given us grace, and he's given us this marvelous life that we live that's largely without any type of consequence whatsoever, I mean, what's our big consequence today? You know, I skinned my knee. I, you know, I did something today I'm sure was kind of unpleasant. I'm not out scrounging for food. I'm not sitting around wondering where my next meal's going. I'm not worried whether somebody's going to walk through that door and gun me down because I'm a Christian. I think we have a bigger responsibility to speak the truth. God hasn't changed his position. And so what he says to them is, deal decisively with sin. Otherwise, you're going to have barrenness. I'll just keep taking you out until there's none of you left. Because I care about my kids. I care about my world. I care about the people that you're polluting around you. Remember that God cares about the people around you. And whether you're being a good influence or a bad influence to them. And so he makes this allusion to Egypt. Mentions it 13 times in this book. It was not good in the past. It was not good in Israel's present. And it will not be good in the future. It represented the flesh. 
And and I, I just simply ask you, remember who you are in Christ. Remember who this country is supposed to be as as a nation whose laws, whose very founding has the indelible marks of Christ all over it. Anybody that tries to feed you the line that we were not founded as a Christian nation just isn't absolutely has no grasp of history. It's it's an absurdity. Go to your capital and look at the paintings on the wall in the rotunda. There's a Bible study, a baptism, and a prayer meeting in three of those in three of those gigantic paintings. The halls are lined with people of faith. As you walk down the hall of the states, the Senate occupies that wing. There are there are a hundred statues, and there are two for each state. More than thirty percent of them are people of faith, Christian faith. They're not just lawyers and teachers. They're pastors. We don't want to turn back to Egypt. I think we can do this. Let's move to chapter 10. He continues and reminds us there are some things that Israel was intent on planting. Let's look at them briefly in chapter 10. For Israel empties its vine, it says in verse 1, and he brings forth fruit for himself. And according to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. In other words, the more bounty they got from the Lord, the more they turned to sin. The more garbage they bought, the more vileness came into their lives. When we use our resources and spend them on things that are an abomination to God, it doesn't make God happy. It's sowing to the flesh. You will reap corruption for it. How many people have gone down that road to where, and you know them, you probably all have at least one person in your life who's like this. They used to be walking with the Lord, but then they got materially better off, and they began to spend their time, their talent, and their treasure on the things of this world. And before you knew it, that's where they worshipped. You couldn't find them any longer in the house of God. They were found in the house of Ashtaroth and Molech and Baal. The sacred pillars there are actually a nice way of saying the phallic symbols out in front of the pillars of Ashtaroth. Their heart is divided, and now they're held guilty. And he will break down their altars, and he will ruin their sacred pillars. You see, what he's saying is, is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I find it very hard to imagine how people think they can divest their spiritual life from their physical life, how they can try and pull the things apart. Well, I'm spiritual here, but not everything I have belongs to the Lord. This stuff over here, God doesn't really care if I have that whole bank of slot machines in my basement. After all, it's for entertainment. And yeah, I'm picking on some people. Because I know where it goes. My family's history is it's been ruined by gambling. My mom still visits the casinos with her government assistance checks to this day. 
You see, when you begin to spend your time and your talent and your treasure in the wrong place, eventually you start to worship in the wrong place. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm not really big on stinging nettle and poison oak and yucky things like cactus in my garden. You you see, they were practicing these immoral things. The more prosperous they got, the more they turned away from God. The more prosperous they got, the more they turned away from God. That's a recipe for disaster. I have some very dear friends, and they're, they're fabulously wealthy. And they love the Lord. And I couldn't begin to tell you of the amazing, wonderful things that they have done throughout their walks with the Lord to provide for things all over the world. And they would kill me if I even mentioned them because it's between them and God. But I can tell you that the opposite is also true. When what you have belongs to the Lord and it doesn't have to be wrestled from your hands and you dedicate everything you have, every last cent, your house, your cars, everything to the Lord, then that prosperity has purpose. In this case, the prosperity had no purpose. And so it was fleeting. They were making Ashtoreth cakes. They were baking their raisin cakes like we saw in chapter 3. The second thing that they had going on here, they they surely planted detestable religion. They, They planted also despicable rulers. For now they say we have no king. We're so good we really can govern ourselves. Have you heard that recently? And frankly, we might be better off without our current government, but it's possible. But we did not fear the Lord. You see, self-governance is always a recipe for disaster. As Alexis de Tocqueville said, a nation is doomed the moment it begins to understand that it can give gifts to itself. When you can reward yourself, it's a bad thing. As for a king, what will he do for us? They've spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant, and this judgment springs up like a hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. For its people mourn, its priests shriek for it because of its glory. It has departed from it, and the idol is also carried to Assyria as a present for the king Jerob. And Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel is ashamed of its own counsel. You see, what they're saying was, is, You know, we'll take the kings of these other nations. And if we have our own kings, we just want to make sure that they don't hinder our ability to sin. Did you hear what I just said? When we elect our officials because they are politically correct and say all the right things to all the wrong people, we are in deep trouble. It's not a good thing. People need guidelines. Not like the Pirates of the Caribbean, more like guidelines, really. Real guidelines, ones that count, ones that matter. Ones that say, you don't cross this line. We don't slay our children. We believe marriage is between a man and a woman. That's how God defined it. We're good with that. We don't believe that legalizing every drug that comes down the pike is the right thing to do. I'm stunned. 
I never thought I'd live in the United States of America that is where we are right now. Well, we don't want to mess with anybody's right to get stoned. I mean, after all, that's a constitutional guarantee, isn't it? That's one of the amendments, I'm sure. You have the right to herb. It's nuts. We have lost our collective mind. We have elected kings that tell us exactly what we want to hear. Stupidity. Planted despicable rulers. They planted deserted ruins. Notice this in verse 7 and 8. For as Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. And also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn, the thistle, shall grow from her altars, and they shall be saying to the mountains, Cover us, and the hills fall on us. You see, these things only last so long. If you're familiar with world history, when you look at the Soviet Union, you know that it came from a czarist imperialist Russia. A czarist imperialist Russia was governed by an oligarchy, a ruling class of people. That ruling class of people learned that it could get wealthier the more that it took from the common person. So your history book reads like this. The fewer people that have more power and more money, the worse off the average person is. I say to you, that is where we're headed. It's not a biblical principle. God cares for the poor. God cares for the downtrodden. And ultimately, if you ever get the opportunity to travel to any of the former Soviet republics or Russia itself, you know what you will find? Largely deserted ruins all over the whole former Soviet Union. Buildings that are not occupied, half-finished, absolutely godless and absolutely empty. That's what following after anyone other than the Lord ultimately brings you. Because eventually, there'll just be a small group of people that will have everything. And now you have no one to do anything. Your Bible is very, very clear on the course of human history. A third thing, they planted false repentance. Verse 9, it says, O Israel, for you have sinned from the days of Gibeah, and we already saw the the difficulties there where they did and there they stood the battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquity and did not overtake them when it was my desire I will chasten them the people shall be gathered against them and I will bind them for their two transgressions for Ephraim is a trained heifer who loves to thresh grain but I will harness her fair neck and I will make Ephraim pull a plow you see this is speaking of the northern kingdom the ten tribes It speaks to those who would falsely repent. Loves the thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck, and I will make Ephraim pull a plow, and Judah shall plow, Jacob shall break up his clods. So both the northern and the southern kingdom will have a hard time because they really weren't repentant. God knew that. God knows exactly what to do when we have a problem listening. He knows exactly what burden to tie around your neck so that all you can see is the dirt that you're walking in. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes 
and rains righteousness upon you. He says, don't make it fake, make it real. This is speaking, of course, very prophetically for a time that is yet future because Israel is still troubled. They still haven't seen true repentance in the land and most people don't know the Lord. The number of people who are actually Jews and actually Christians is a very small number of people on this earth. But he's saying to everyone, he's saying to us, he was saying to them then. He's saying, don't try and just do the right things. You've got to be the right kind of person. That means genuinely understanding who the Lord is and inviting him into your life and allowing him to do what he wants to do. He knows the difference between us looking good and us actually being good. And finally, they had planted a bunch of cactus. A dreadful reward. For you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. Notice the reaping and sowing. Here's what you did. You plowed the field. You plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You're out there doing whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way. And in the multitude of your mighty men, so you didn't trust in me. You're trusting in the arm of flesh. Isaiah said that you have trusted in horses and chariots. You cared more about what the world thought than what God thought. It's not ever a good thing. The reward of that is not good and therefore. Remember that word, therefore. What's it there for? Looking back, what's it mean? Tumult shall rise among your people. Internal strife and struggle that leads to insanity is what tumult is. It's such a fragmented state of mind that's based in a lack of anything being right that, that everything seems as though it's destroyed. Tumult shall rise among your people. And all your fortresses shall be plundered. The high places that you trusted in the castles that you stood behind the walls and said, no one can get me in here. The castle of self. The castle of mind. The castle of intellect. The castle of education. The castle of self-reliance. That's your reward. You trust in yourself. Yourself is what you got. Trust in the Lord. The Lord is what you got. And as for me and my house, as Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. A shaman plundered Beth Arabal. In the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. And thus shall it be done to you, O Bethel. Bethel. The house of bread. Blessed of the Lord because of your great wickedness at the dawn of the King of Israel shall be cut off utterly. A nation's voice and a nation's vileness were about to be rewarded with judgment. Her defenses against the enemy would fall. You know, the Lord's not... And I don't mean to belittle our military in any way, shape, or form. But those four 
guided missile destroyers that are sitting in the Mediterranean. God's not concerned. He's not looking at our nuclear arsenal going, what do I do? He's more than able to handle any contingency, as our joint chiefs will say. We can handle any contingency that came out today. I can tell you who can handle any contingency. And his name is Yahweh, Lord of hosts. The Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is forevermore. The one who was here at the beginning, the one who will be here at the end. The one who one day will ride from heaven on a white horse, followed by an army of angels and saints to deal decisively with the world's evil. And before that, there's going to be a war in the Middle East. It's going to be started by Russia, who will attack Israel, who will be joined by Syria, Iran, Persia, Egypt, the Arabs of the nation that is now Saudi Arabia. And they will join against Israel, and Israel will actually survive. That's what your Bible says. I'm not worried. I am concerned for the innocent, and I'm concerned for people who don't know Jesus. And that needs to be our concern. That the word of the Lord would go forth, and those who will be saved will be saved. Those that God has called will be saved. Those upon whom God is knocking on their heart door even tonight would be saved. For God is desiring that all should be saved, that all should come to repentance. Our job is to be busy making sure that people know about him. Amen? Don't plant cactus unless you want thorns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, even for these difficult passages of Scripture, Lord, for they they give us strength to stand in the evil day. As your word has declared to us, that we would, having done all to stand, therefore stand. Lord, we know that in these last days there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famine and earthquake. Lord, there are going to be all kinds of things that will transpire. And thank you that your word also declares that we've not been appointed into wrath, but the salvation will miss the lion's share of the worst of it. But we do know that your word says that in this a world that we live in, there's going to one day come a time when a single world religion will seem very appealing. Lord, and if all the world's religions are fighting, that would make that very appealing. There will be a time when a single world monetary currency and system would seem very appealing, and when the world's falling apart, Lord, that would sure be appealing even today. And Father, a government uh, that would be governed from uh, a place that would be beneficial for all God's children. Lord, we can see that coming. And so, Lord, we ask that you make us busy about your business, that you give us faith to stand. Lord, you cause us to, to be your mouthpiece, to speak your truth. Lord, to stand for righteousness, Lord, in these last days. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.